Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ. Thanks for joining us on the show. We're coming at you from Jagera and Turrbal lands, as well as the Kulin Nation. I'm Corey, and later on we'll be joined by Ian Kerr. This week, we're looking at real jobs. What does it mean when your parents look at you with concern and say that you really should think about getting a real job? Or what about when a drongo yells this same phrase at you from a moving car? We think that the issue of a real job goes to the heart of our economic system and what it means to live a good life. On this show, we'll explore bullshit jobs, undervalued work, women's work, and socially useful employment. Ian starts the show. What is a real job? The reason why I approached this question in the first place was that I was having a discussion about climate change with an environmental engineer, and he was talking about how important it is that jobs go away from fossil fuels uh, to environmentally sustainable jobs. And so I started thinking about that in the context of Queensland, which is a very big coal-producing state. And I was wondering, why is it that people haven't accepted that's possible, that you can go from coal to renewables and that you'll get the same number of jobs and that they'll be as well paid and with as good conditions. Uh, and, and the reason why I, I think that people haven't accepted that is the last federal election voted in favour of the LNP and they were the ones pushing fossil fuel jobs. And the Labor Party seemed to equivocate a bit about Adani and they didn't seem to have a proper jobs transitions program. And so I got into a bit of a debate with my engineering friend and he sent me a whole lot of stuff. And I thought, well, you know, I needed to go back one step and ask myself, well, what is a real job? And so I looked at what he was sending me 
And then I reflected on my own working life. So I'm nearly 70 years of age. I went to work uh, in a full-time job in the end of 1967, and I worked for 38 years. And in those 38 years, I looked at all the the jobs that I'd had, the many jobs, and I came up with this conclusion that only 22 of those 38 years was I actually in a real job. And I wondered, well, why was that? Why why did I come to that conclusion in the first place? And so I drew up a list of criteria of what a real job is. Okay. What's a real job, Ian? Not in any particular order, but the criteria I used, and I think there may be others, was the ability to save money, whether you can afford to buy a motor vehicle, can you pay mortgage or rent with the wage that you're earning, Um, what percentage of your wage does your mortgage or rent payment take up, are you under an industrial award or is there a labour contract, like a labour hire contract, Um, what are your pay and conditions, can you be a member of a union? Is there an active union in your workplace? What is the level of worker solidarity in that workplace? What's the level of exploitation by the boss? Is the work productive and creative? Does the work provide self-esteem? Is it a vocation? What do you wear to work? Do you have a uniform? Is childcare provided or is it possible to obtain childcare? Um, and does the work involved, does it involve menial or domestic duties? And finally, is the job sustainable? That is, uh, this is necessary not just to stop, you know, the current ecological collapse, but which, you know, which seems to be happening more rapidly all the time, but how do we regenerate the natural environment on which all life depends? So that was my, my list. So what do you reckon, Corey? Yeah, well, I think those are a lot of really good things to think about with a job. In terms of, I suppose, an easier discussion and and ideology, I think uh, some of the things to consider are what you said, paying conditions, whether or not you can support yourself, whether or not the work is meaningful and how the work affects the community and the environment. That's a very important one. And I want throughout the show to also discuss ideas on, well, you brought up the question of whether it involves domestic duties and there's a feminist argument that says that that feminised labour is is greatly undervalued when in fact it contributes quite a lot to society and should be, you know, valued more greatly than other forms of work that are perhaps valued but um, don't contribute so obviously such as I don't know, marketing. Rise and shine, yet another day to toss away. What does my clock display? It says This is Corey and Ian on the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ. Today we're looking at real jobs. This is Mr. Liff with 
live from the plantation. Now I'm off to slave quarters with a whole bunch of other people's sons and daughters Working so they can be mothers and fathers Laboring real hard hoping the boss offers More petty cash to us bums and paupers Kissing his ass cause they're hoping they prosper Here's the math, you work a 30 a day away The government takes a 30 year check, correct You go home and drink cause you don't get an ounce of respect And your spirit is wrecked Life is a gift to be enjoyed every second, every minute It's temporary, not infinite Yet I find myself looking at the clock Hoping for the day to fly by So I ask myself why I'm doing this remedial work for second graders I'm an educator with mega flavor So I thought it would be good to look at David Graeber's concept of the bullshit job I did list a few of my own bullshit jobs that I had in that 38 years. Um, I worked as a, a taxi driver and, and um, I was like working at nights while I was studying and that was pretty much a bullshit job. Uh, not just because the conditions were appalling, you had to work 13 hours to make enough money to pay the rent, but because, um, you know, you were totally... On contract, you were at the mercy of the the uh, the guy that owned the cab, and I, I drove yellow cabs, and um, you were exposed to a lot of um, at night a lot of bad behaviour, which you didn't have a lot of control over. And uh, in that job, I got beaten up uh, one time, I got threatened by a knife another time, and uh, you know a lot of people got sick in my cab which I had to clean out before I re returned it to base. So it was pretty much a bullshit job. I think that is a terrible undervalued job with terrible conditions, but it's not what I'm thinking of with a bullshit job. With a bullshit job, what I'm thinking of is a job that actually doesn't contribute at all to society. Like, for example, I once worked in a free car park. Um, I could have very easily been replaced with a sign. There was, you know, there was no work for me to do, essentially. The the only reason that I was at the free car park was to make the restaurant seem more prestigious. I've got a clip here of the author David Graeber, who wrote the book Bullshit Jobs, and he explains it. Bullshit jobs I define as a job where even the person doing the job secretly believes the job really shouldn't exist. But nonetheless, a part of the conditions of employment is that you have to does. It's important to distinguish between bullshit jobs and shit jobs. Um, mostly when you say bullshit jobs, people at first assume you mean jobs that just you don't really want to have. Jobs where they don't treat you well, jobs where they don't pay you well, jobs where you work under difficult or humiliating or onerous conditions. So most of the jobs that are shit jobs actually aren't bullshit jobs. Most of the jobs that um, oppress you are jobs like you know, cleaners or ditch diggers or, or nurses. Uh, servants of various kinds um, who are mistreated, at least know they're doing something. Bullshit job is actually kind of the opposite of that. A bullshit job, you're often given a lot of money, you're treated very well, with a great deal of respect, um, often seen as you know, the, the person in your family who most made something of yourself, but at the same time, you're secretly haunted by the knowledge that you're not actually doing anything, that if your job didn't exist at all, the world either would change in no way or even might become a slightly better place. This is one of the great mysteries of our time as far as I'm concerned because we usually associate make work, stupid made up jobs with some state socialism, you know, 
in the Soviet Union, they used to say, well, you know, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. They make up jobs which are completely unnecessary. That makes sense because they had an ideology of full employment. On the other hand, capitalism, that's exactly the thing that isn't supposed to happen. A private firm would never hire someone and put out good money to someone who they don't actually need. But in fact, if you talk to people who work for large corporations, they do it all the time. How does that happen? I think part of it has to be explained by political pressure. In a way, just as in the Soviet Union, there was a central directive saying, we need full employment. They didn't say, therefore, make up bullshit jobs, right? Uh, but they didn't say, don't do it. Uh, in a similar way, uh, we have pressure from both the left and the right to create jobs all the time. You know, on the one hand, you have the left saying, we need like public works, we need more um, money being given to consumers to stimulate the economy. On the right, they're saying, give money to capitalists and all hire people. But this, the one thing left and right totally agree on is the solution to all problems is more jobs. But they never say jobs that actually do something, you know, jobs that are worthwhile anyway. It's just assumed that if jobs are created, they will necessarily serve a purpose. And if you don't specify that, if you don't have a self-conscious policy of trying to make sure that jobs actually do something, you're going to end up with useless make work. It's just going to happen. A lot of bosses, people who hire people, just get very angry at this, at me about this. They're about the only people who get angry at this premise. They say, look, you know, I would never hire someone if they didn't serve a purpose. This is just stupid, insulting. You don't understand how capitalism works. But bosses are the last people to know what's really going on. I trust people to understand what they're really doing, or at least if anybody does, they will. Maybe I should just look at it from the, you know, he mentioned there state socialism, the Soviet Union, and then uh, I didn't pick up everything that he said, but I, but I, I sort of got the drift of what he was saying about how certain economies like the Soviet Union required full employment. Uh, you know, that was just a given, an ideological kind of given. Now, when I entered the, the workforce here in Australia, Australia had full employment. Um, it, it was because there was a, a post-war boom and there were very, very few unemployed people. So you, you could get a job. Um, now, it may not have been to your liking, but you could actually get a job. It was also a deliberate policy, wasn't it? Full employment. Well, it, it was. It was more than a policy. I think it was um, a, the society itself required it. You know, it didn't. It didn't come solely from government, because I. I think what happened, and this is only me guessing, is that after all the 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 uh, re, the hard part of Second World War, you know, that where people had to give up so much, um, they wanted, you know, they wanted to get the benefits of the freedoms that they had won, you know, that they had defeated fascism. People really wanted something real to happen. And so, for example, in England, they voted out one of the most popular prime ministers ever, Winston Churchill, in a huge landslide towards the Labour Party because they could see that Winston Churchill wanted to go back to the way the, the country was, was before the war 
whereas the Labour Party were offering, you know, new jobs, new economic future, prosperity, and people, you know, they wanted that. They wanted all the things that, like, that they were offering that went with that, like uh, national health scheme, free education. So Winston Churchill, even though many people thought he'd won the war, they then just dumped him because he didn't have a plan that was in line with what people wanted and uh, were yearning for after all of the privations of the Second World War. And, okay, British people suffered more than Australians, but Australians, you know, they bore the brunt of the war. A lot of people didn't come home. They had rationing, you know, food was scarce and they, they wanted something more. And so any government that came in had to respond to that. And sometimes even the ideology of the government of the day, like Menzies, he had to give up his own ideology in order to fulfil the wishes of the people and stay in power. Mm. But wouldn't you say now that there's still a lot of desire on people's part to work and a lot of work that needs to be done, for example, the transition to renewable energies, but there's a profound disconnect in our society between the work that's available, the work that's being done and the work that needs to be done. And then and then there's also this huge pool of people who are unemployed when they would actually like to be doing work. Yeah, I, I agree, um, the, especially the last point that we're having the largest mass unemployment now perhaps in 90 years um, since the stock market crash in the Great Depression, we were looking at really high levels of unemployment where people just can't get work. Well, I mean, obviously that's the pandemic right now, but before then there was still a high level of unemployment, I would say. Yes, and, and an even higher level of underemployment and employment in jobs that uh, were not really not really sufficient for someone to live in the society as it is. Thanks for joining us on Paradigm Shift. This is Corian Inn. This week we're having a look at the concept of real jobs. We've just had a look at bullshit jobs, which are jobs that might be paid well, but don't contribute meaningfully to society. Next up, we're going to look at the flip side of bullshit jobs, which is jobs that might contribute meaning, but aren't necessarily valued by society. This is Dolly Parton with her thoughts on being undervalued in her classic track, Nine to Five. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five What a jobs uh, 
that are undervalued by society because they're seen as as not contributing, but well, you know, they contribute to the quality of life, such as the arts. I mean, the the pay and condition for artists is just dreadful. I mean, you know, you hear all these stories of people not wanting to pay them for their work or or severely undervaluing the work compared to the amount of hours that went into it. Yes. Um, there is that thing with the arts that is where is the demand for the for the art and um you know it's it's a it's a tricky area isn't it because you can make something some artistic thing which people don't don't value and and then at the same time you know someone a celebrity can come along and make a a television show which everyone watches and uh they you know they might make art that is not really very doesn't really reflect society but it's it's somehow promoted in such a way that it becomes you know like the top of the pops music you know <laughs> and it's and it's crap i was thinking as of entertainment and that sort of uh, very mainstream artistic works as as all of the arts. I mean, there, there are some people who make quite a lot of money out of the arts, such as, you know, the big TV stations, but then there's a lot of people such as independent filmmakers who, who aren't making a lot of money. And I guess you are saying demand is an issue, but also if you want to get into the big movies, for example, there's a, a long period of time where you have to work um, independently for no pay and, you know, as your own boss and and everyone's paying you in exposure and so forth. And and I think that there's a large pool of labour of people who are contributing to the arts and entertainment and not making a lot of money. And then just a few people at the top who are making quite a lot of money. So it's it's a very kind of uneven split. Yeah, isn't the problem there, it's inequality. Out of the, say, the pool of money that might be allocated to the arts either by commercial or by public funding, that they're tending to, because of the, the star system, they're creating this enormous inequality by paying some people millions of dollars while other people are getting paid a pittance. Mm. It's kind of like being a star is like the American dream. You know, It drives people to, to contribute to this enormously profitable industry for, you know, very, very low wages. I think that fits into my criterion of whether you're being exploited or not. So the artists, are, some artists are, are really badly exploited and that is what makes the job not a real job. It's not because the art is not desirable or entertaining or helpful, giving insights into society. It's just that the 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 artists who, the people producing the wealth that comes from it they're just they're exploited terribly i um have an interesting quote this is from the shadow arts minister tony burke he appeared on smart arts on triple r the other week talking about the government's arts package and he was talking about how um a lot of artists weren't eligible for uh, JobKeeper and the government said, oh, well, they can just go on to JobSeeker. Now, if you're on JobKeeper, the whole purpose of JobKeeper is to keep you in the job, whereas JobSeeker is about finding a different job. 
which I, you know, was an important distinction that he made. The most important part of our calls has been, and we've moved motions in the in the Parliament on it, we've called for it every time Parliament's returned, and that is to open up JobKeeper to people in the arts and entertainment sector who are currently shut out. Some people have been eligible, that's true, but principally the people who, the more creative your work is, the less likely you are to have found your way in. Uh, and opening up JobKeeper is the biggest issue. And, and this is where, you know, I've spent a lifetime arguing about the arts being important for our stories, uh, for, for our soul, for, for oxygen, for our community to define who we are, how we see each other, how the world sees us. But if that argument's not going to resonate with the government, can they at least understand that the individuals concerned here are workers? They are part of an economy that functions as an ecology. And if you cut out any section of it, you harm the whole thing. That was Tony Burke, the Shadow Arts Minister, talking about how much he values the arts. There are many forms of undervalued work, not just the arts, but what you might consider women's work. I have always thought that cleaners are criminally underpaid, given the high value of their work. I hope we can all particularly appreciate that during this pandemic. One of the key demands of the feminist movement in the West was that women should be allowed into many more areas of the workforce and be paid equally. These are Peggy Seeger's reflections on the role of women in the workforce in her song, I'm Gonna Be an Engineer. When I was a little girl, I wished I was a boy. I tagged along behind the gang and wore me corduroys. Everybody said I only did it to annoy, but I was gonna be an engineer. Mama told me, can't you be a lady? Your duty is to make me the mother of a pearl. Wait until you're older, dear, and maybe you'll be glad that you're a girl. A dainty as a dress and statue. Gentle as a Jersey cow Smooth as silk Gives creamy milk Learn to coo Learn to moo That's what you do to be a lady now When I went to school I learned to write and how to read Some history, geography and home economy And typing is a skill That every girl is sure to need To while away the extra time Until the time to breed they had the nerve to say, but would you like to be? I says, I'm gonna be an engineer. No, you only need to learn to be a lady. The duty isn't yours for to try and run the world. An engineer could never have a baby. Remember, dear, that you're a girl. She's smart for a woman. I wonder how she got that way. You get no choice, you get no voice Just stay mum, pretend you're dumb And that's how you come to be a lady today Then Jimmy come along and we set up a conjugation We were busy every night, love and recreation I spent the day at work so he could get his education Well now he's an engineer He says I know you'll always be a lady It's the duty my darling to love me all her life could an engineer look after or obey me remember dear that you're my wife well as soon as jimmy got a job i began again then happy at me terribly the year or so and then the morning that the twins were born jimmy says to them kids your mother was an engineer you owe it to the kids to be a lady 
dainty as a dish rag, faithful as a chow. Stay at home, you got to mind the baby. Remember, you're a mother now. Well, every time I turn around, it's something else to do. It's cook a meal, mend a soft, sweep a floor or two. I listen in to Jimmy Young, it makes me want to spew. I was gonna be an engineer. Don't I really wish that I could be a lady? I could do the lovely things that a lady's supposed to do. I wouldn't even mind if only they would pay me. And I could be a person too. What price for a woman? You could buy her for a ring of gold. To love and obey without any pay. You get a cook and a nurse. For better or worse, you don't need a purse when the lady is so. Ah, but now that times are harder and me Jimmy's got the sack. I went down to Vickers, they were glad to have me back. But I'm a third-class citizen, my wages tell me that. And I'm a first-class engineer. The boss, he says, we pay you as a lady. You only got the job cause I can't afford a man. With you, I keep the profits highest, maybe. You're just a cheaper pair of hands You got one fault, you're a woman You're not worth the equal pay A bitch or a tart, you're nothing but heart Shallow and vain, you got no brain You even go down the drain like a lady today Well, I listened to my mother and I joined a typing pool I listened to my lover and I put him through his school but if I listen to the boss, I'm just a bloody fool and an underpaid engineer. I've been a sucker ever since I was a baby, as a daughter, as a wife, as a mother and a dear. But I'll fight them as a woman, not a lady. Fight them as an engineer. This is Corey and Ian on Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ. I rang up my mum to chat about changes to women's work because she experienced a huge amount of this transition in her life. Welcome to the show. Can you please introduce yourself? Well, I'm Mary Finch. I'm Corey Marie Green's mother. I'm uh, I'm a researcher. I've um, just finished a PhD in education and I'm working as a researcher these days. And when you were young, what work were women expected to undertake? Well, my uh, childhood in the 50s, women worked at home, married women worked at home, and um, women worked outside the home as well, of course. Single women would uh, often have a job, as in, although there was always a restricted um, level of choices, so they might, for example, work at a shop or a nurse or a teacher. There was, I mean, there were a few female doctors and other professionals, but that was pretty rare. Did that change according to a person's ethnicity? Yes, I suppose so. My knowledge of ethnicity in the 1950s was pretty restricted. But in the little country town in Queensland where I lived, I guess the the workers in the shops, the teachers, the nurses, um, were all Caucasians. Uh, the only awareness I have of 
of Aboriginal women working for money, I can remember they used they used to do work like come in and do people's washing, um, perhaps a bit of cleaning, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, I'm only asking you what you can recollect, nothing beyond uh, that really. And so when did the roles that women were expected to undertake change? I think women's work outside the home, married women's work outside the home, paid work, really took off in the early late 1960s, early 1970s. I can remember when I started teaching in early 1970s, it was starting to be uh, accepted that women who were married would work until they had, or probably until they got pregnant or until they had a child. Um, it was much frowned upon that they would work once the children had arrived. Once the children arrived, you were meant to stay at home and, you know, be a full-time housekeeper. But, of course, that changed then fairly quickly, I guess, in the probably from 1970 to 1980, Mainly, I think, because lots of middle-class women, like teachers and nurses, and the increasing numbers of professional women, as in doctors and lawyers, that were starting to happen, did uh, it just didn't accept that they had to stay at home and mind their own children. So, you know, childcare started to be more readily available, and people just defied, I guess, the social disapproval of it because it was actually conservative people thought it was quite shocking. And I know even when I um, was working when your older sister was born. For the audience, that's 1982. Um, you know, like I was much, much discouraged discreetly in the family from thinking that I would, be, I would still be working. Added to that, looking, uh, if you go back further than that, though, is, you know, there was quite a rule up to even in the early 70s in the public servant service, for example, once you got married, you had to resign. And that reflected the whole social social customs and, and uh, attitudes that married women weren't supposed to be out there earning a living. So... You've talked about individual resistance. Would you say that it was mostly individuals making choices and defying convention or would you say that it was part of larger changes? Uh, I guess it was part of larger changes that were happening at the time. For example, on a practical level, people were starting to set up childcare centres, which were new in Queensland anyway, where, where I was in the 1970s. Women were starting to assert their right to independence and there's real no real independence without financial independence and so you know having a job being able to allowed to have a job is is a big part of that so you know you're talking Germaine Greer and the, the female eunuch and you know there, there were lots late 1960s early 1970s there was a lot of talk in the media and um about um this whole idea that women were or should be treated as equal to men and and you know the sort of 
gender discrimination that existed was was very un, unfair and you know and then people went on to say and we're not going to take it anymore and would you say that women's role within the home changed a lot during this period very slowly i certainly had friends who were allowed to work as long as it didn't interfere with any of their expected duties at home and even if that wasn't actually spoken of like that there was a lot of resistance in amongst men to actually taking part in you know looking after children or or doing the housekeeping that was women's work if they wanted to work as well well they could but you know like they most mostly men it was uh, they'd been brought up with you know seeing the models of, of being waited on hand and foot at home by their mothers, you know, like that stuff all just happened, didn't it? Uh, no one really took any attention to it. And so I think there was a big there was a big conservatism amongst men about sharing the housekeeping. What impact did it have on women's lives when different roles became more widely available to them? Well, it allowed it allowed us all to broaden our horizons a bit about um, how we would spend our lives. I think it made a difference to the it made a difference to our relationships because we moved from dependent to independent. And as I said before, really you can't. Uh, there's no real independence if you're still dependent on on someone to. to pay your way. If you're paying your own way, on the other hand, well, you've got more choices. And I know that you can't fully speak to this, but what do you think that the impact was on men? Well, I think a lot of men resented um, the whole business because it increased the competition in the workforce, for starters, um, which was, they regarded as quite illegitimate. Many of them had to reset their thinking on on their own roles at home and some men thought about that in my opinion you know in in ways that were fair and could see the fairness of it and some of them I think were just you know in, in a way they come up through the 1950s young men in their 20s and 30s had seen a model where men went to work and after work, their time was theirs and, you know, like they went to the pub, they played sport, they did their hobbies. They didn't come home and start cleaning and cooking and, and looking after kids, you know, like they were kings at home. And then suddenly that was all ripped away and here, here were these um, cranky young women saying, no, you do your bit, I'm, you know, I'm earning the same as you, we're, we're partners in this, I want, you know, I'm not doing all the housekeeping for you, you know. Like it didn't, I guess it, you know, from their point of view, it kind of seemed like a really good deal. But then on the other hand, you know, on the other hand, it relieved them of the sole responsibility for earning the, the wage in the house. And so, you know, that, that was it. Now paying the bills was shared burden rather than something that they had alone. So. You know, there was some give and take. I don't know how many men saw it like that. But I think it definitely made a difference to people's relationships within their partnerships. 
I, I believe, and I believe in many cases for the better because, yeah, it, it stopped being a boss-slave thing and, and it was a partnership. We were, I don't know, I always felt it was a, a benefit in my own marriage anyway that, yeah, we weren't, uh, we, we didn't have to lie to each other. We didn't have to have play silly games about whether, um, you know, I, I was attractive enough or exciting enough or or docile enough even. Um, you know, to stay married, and that wasn't an issue. And and yet, if you read the uh, the women's magazines of the fifties and sixties, as I did, yeah, that was huge. That was huge. You 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 got so much advice on how to be a good wife in those women's magazines. In you know how to be a conservative good wife and make sure you kept your husband happy. <laughs> And it was a big issue for women who were, you know, had no other means of support. So we have these major changes to the workforce. Uh, what impact do you think that this had on the wider society? Um, I think one of the big ones for me as a high school teacher was to see how a young women's view of what their lives were about changed over time. And so from going from, you know, finding a husband was your role in, you know, as a young woman. Um, meh, the, you could, over time, you know, starting some as early as, as the 1980s, but certainly um, in much more 90s and, and, uh, and the, the noughties, I think they call them, uh, you know, young, young women have suddenly got much more of an idea that they're going somewhere with their lives. They're, they've, you know, they're expected to have um, an employment role. Um, it's okay to have ideas. Speak your mind. Um, it's um, it, it's a different way to live, I think, and that your relationship fits in there somewhere but that it's not you don't expect that to be your whole life anymore do you think that now is still a period of transition between the model of uh women being at home and men being the providers and the model of uh women and men taking on both of those roles equally oh yeah because for a start look at what all the studies tell us about uh how much housekeeping men really do and how much childcare men really do you know that's still predominantly done by women. Um, I, th I think that's quite telling, actually. Yeah, it's, it's, it, uh, this whole equality thing isn't over yet and there's, there's always a lot of pushback as well. Don't forget there's, you know, all those uh, groups of women who, you know, women who just want to be women or whatever it is they, however they put it, um, you know, and that's not women in general. That's a particular form of female role that they're talking about. Roles keep changing. Mm. Who knows what the future will bring? We, we may go back. There's always a, a, a backlash. Um, it, suits, it suits a lot of people very well to have um, someone taking care of the um, all that mundane housekeeping stuff at home, minding the children. Some men don't like to do that. That's all right, I guess. There's a lot more models now. It's, that's not a general model anymore. That's probably more of the change than any any whole of society change. What would you like to see for the future? 
I guess I'd like to see people uh, have a lot more tolerance towards all the different roles that women have in society. I don't. I don't think that a lot of people have have yet even got cottoned onto the idea that actually men and women make an equal contribution to society, and that that should be recognised. I mean, think about if you're thinking work. There's a lot of volunteer work that's done by women. Well, there's a lot of volunteer work done by men as well, of course. But there's another whole issue in work as all the volunteer work that happens that people often don't really recognise. There's the unpaid work as well. It's a lot of, you know, home, looking after the home, but also looking after each other, which you might think of as work. So, you know, some of it done professionally, but an enormous amount of it done unpaid. So I, I think those areas are areas that it would be good to raise consciousness about and um, perhaps give more recognition to what that adds to society. Well, thank you for appearing on the show. It's been a pleasure. That was my mum, Mary Finch, talking about the changes to women's work that she experienced during her lifetime. You're listening to Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ with Corey and Ian. To round out our discussion of real jobs, we're going to look at the idea of socially useful employment as embodied in the struggles of the BLF in the 1970s. This song, Bring Back the Green Bands, by When Our Turn Comes, gives a pretty good overview of that struggle. What if your boss said you're going to work to tear up the planet because you're fucking berserk? What if your boss said to knock down the trees to bomb civilians and then spread the disease? Would you say, fuck that, I'm not going to work and rock the foundations of the capital works? Or would you just recede and proceed to wait with your shoulder burdened from the pain and the weight? Back in the 70s on the east coast, builders, labourers were like burning toast in the kitchen of the fucking elite. Vietnam protest every two weeks, shit hit the fan that was getting deep. A wolf was the system and the people were sheep. Trade unions were busting a move in defence of the right of the people to groove to their own tune. And I mean that funk, not the half-baked cooked up conveyor of junk. Fair pay and not dying at work. 36 hours a week on their turf, falling off the towers or getting buried in cement. These were the things a weak union meant. So you can be damn sure they wanted every cent of the enterprise bargain worked out in the tent. And when A.V. Jennings wanted Kelly's bush, they told him to shove it and get fucked off the books. And despite the bad press and the filthy looks, they decided they still try to battle the crooks. They battled the crooks. They battled the crooks. The BLF. They battled the crooks. They battled the crooks. They battled the crooks. The BLF. They battled the crooks. They battled the crooks. They battled the crooks. The BLF. They battled the crooks. That's the BLF. Green bins. That's the way to take on the system, man. Yeah, the BLF. Green bins. That's the way to take on the system, man. Yeah, the BLF. Green bins. That's the way to take on the system, man. Yeah, the BLF. Green bins, that's 
a way to take on that system. Trade unions busting a move. Work bands spread all across the city. Forty work sites were barred without pity. Stop the concrete, break the pour, hold up the project till you give us some more. More pay, more safety gear and meal time. And pay the migrants the same, your shit slime. Women on the job and as the union leaders. Cut gender stereotypes like meat cleavers. Black band actions to save the block. Pink bands telling homophobes to back off. Green bands to protect the parks and to save big markets for the working class. Three billion dollars worth of shit on hold and that's no mean feat in the era of Cold War. Anti-communist fear that the Soviets weren't calling the shots here. Genuine revolutionary action, not just slogans but lots of traction. Grassroots union rank of fall, the BL's going that extra mark. That's the BLF, green bands, that's the way to take on the system man. The BLF, green bands, that's the way to take on the system man. Yeah, the BLF. Green bins, that's the way to take on the system. The BLF, green bins, that's the way to take on the system. Trade unions busting a move. The ABCC is a Gestapo, they never ever want it to happen again, you know. Green bins fucking the system up. The capital elite want to keep the corrupt. See how it made these Nazi cops to go to work sites and lock down the block. They rebadged it under labour You could change your name but it's still the same union decimator Tony Abbott bought the old name back Put the head kickers in and now they're on the attack 40 grand if you go on strike and no right to silence if they ask you questions like You want to ride on your mates and cause strife when a Spanish inquisition in your personal life? Fuck that, Gestapo have got to go The real criminals are the CEOs telling the libs and the ALP what to do Like when they banned the BLF, true, yeah, true lies the ALP kind They're just another liberal party in my mind Real rights of work, you gotta scrap the system Wherever you work, you gotta join your union Tell them to snap into action And if they don't, you need to sack them Vote in a new generation Work band strikes and industrial action Give the corporations a complication Give the corporations a complication The big LF Green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man The big LF Green bands, that's the way to take on the system, man The big LF Green bins, that's the way to take on the system. The big LF. Green bins, that's the way to take on the system. Imagine green bins in coal-fired power stations causing blackouts across the nation to coincide with the climate rallies, shutting shit down from the city to the valley. No coal going out of the ports because the miners and the wharfies have got other thoughts. BLF. Green bins, we got to do it again for climate action, man. The big LF. Green bins, that's the way to take on the system, man. The big LF. Green bins, that's the way to take on the system. The big LF. Green bins, that's the way to take on the system, man. The big LF. Green bins. Yep, I remember. Um, the 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 area that you're talking about now, of course, is the rocks in Sydney, right on the harbour, and. Um, the Rocks was a, a place where uh, working class people lived in um, quite modest accommodation, but it was near to where they worked. A lot of people worked um, on the wharves. Um, they worked in, in building. They worked in the city. They kept the, the city clean. They, they, they had all manner of different jobs in a time of high employment. 
and they, their housing was to be knocked down and replaced by those huge spires of glass that he's talking about there, which were devoted towards providing buildings for big corporations, uh, providing elite accommodation for wealthy people with penthouses and whatnot, and to really move the poor out of the city and uh, bring and send them into the, the fringes of the city and to bring all the rich people into the centre of the city. So it was... It was a real um, challenge by Jack Mundy and the his me- the fellow members of the Builders Labourers Federation. They came to that notion that we've got to have a collective society with responsibility for everyone, and that's provide decent housing and de- decent jobs for everyone. That really came out of their. Uh, critique of capitalism and of course Jack was a member of the Communist Party as were some of the leading members of the Builders Labourers and um, they felt that that Australia was involved in basically a war economy because we were at war in Vietnam that that they they had a really strong uh, really contempt for the capitalist system that produced that and they wanted to have a fairer society and that was really, you know, they wanted to, you know, they were, they were socialists. And so they, it was part of an overall um, thinking. Why did it end? Um, that's a really tricky question. Um, I think it ended for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons I would give is that the demise of the Communist Party in Australia. The Communist Party was the only party that envisaged, you know, a party of big membership, I mean, the only one that envisaged a different society um, other than, the, you know, the, the what was being put up by the mainstream parties of uh, Labour and Liberal. And um, they, they were, you know, I suppose enthralled by the fact that there had been a revolution uh, in Russia and that regardless of its um, shortcomings and their increasing awareness of it, they still thought that change was possible from the, the base up by ordinary people, working class people, and that they... Jack Mundy was uh, was really quite ahead of his time in a way because he was saying, "Look, we've got to listen to those women at Kelly's Bush because they are onto something important about saving the environment, and they're not just doing it for themselves; they're doing it for everyone." And even though there was obvious class differences there, that the women were largely middle class and and he and his mates were working class they still saw that there was a benefit for the for everyone by having that uh, environment saved and it's a beautiful place you know you could it's hard to argue with it really i mean um but because the um there was a demise of that of the communist party there was also a demise of the union movement 
and that that sense of the collective of the um, the the, uh, the possibility of change and um, then dissipated and so people got caught in the system even worse than before. In the modern day, there is still the Earth Worker Cooperative who um, live by those principles and organise around a cooperative business model. Uh, one of their founders was Dave Karen, who was also involved in the Green Bands. So it's not like the ideas have completely gone away. So Earthworker, well, it envisions itself to be a series of cooperatives. So it's currently only two, but that's, you know, a good start. So they have uh, one cooperative that creates solar hot water systems and they're down in the Latrobe Valley where there used to be um, coal-fired power stations. And the idea of moving to the Latrobe Valley really was that there was a lot of people who used to work in the coal industry and, and now they don't have jobs and they had a, a lot of expertise and they deserve a job as much as anybody else. And that if you, if you want to uh, bring those people along you know, on environmental issues, then they can't lose out economically, essentially. So so that's the first cooperative. And the second cooperative is a environmental cleaning cooperative, which runs in Melbourne. That's been really good, actually. I, I don't know how many people that they've employed now. I think it's about 10. And um, they go around to various places like the um, ASU, for example, and do cleaning. And they... Um, before the pandemic, we're doing domestic cleans as well. It's socially useful work and they do it in an environmental way. And they, I think the most important thing for the people who are members, including my flatmate, is that they, they have some say over their working conditions. So, for example, when the pandemic hit, they decided not to do domestic cleans. You know, they had many meetings um, because they they didn't have the correct PPE and they, and they, they didn't have the correct training to deal with exposure to the pandemic and because they all ran the business collectively they could decide to do that whereas many other cleaners in the cleaning business and my um, flatmate is in fact in the union as well and here's these stories you know they're being forced to for example clean um, sites where there has been known coronavirus exposure with no PPE so yeah I think that what they've done is actually really terrific and it's nice to think that the ideas of the Green Bands are still living today and people are still, yeah, working towards those those three goals, work that looks after the needs of the workers, that's socially useful and looks after the community and looks after the environment. Thanks for tuning in to Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM streaming and digital. This has been Ian and Corey. On today's show, we talked about real jobs. Within that topic, we looked at bullshit jobs, undervalued jobs, women's work, and socially useful labour. We hope that you enjoyed the show. This final track is Bob Marley with Work. <laughs>